Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Well, as Naomi's dad, it is a little surreal to see her graduating from high school and preparing to head off to university. It seems like just yesterday that we brought her to church for the first time and set her down in her car seat in the back corner. <laughs> and you know, over the years, many of you have watched her in the nursery, uh, spoken life into her, taught her about Jesus, taught Sunday school, invested in her, and come alongside Michelle and me as parents, and we are so grateful. And we're so proud of the young woman that Naomi has become. And we're proud of the other young men and women that are being celebrated today. You know, Naomi and our other youth are all a part of Gen Z. And like every generation before them, they have to listen to all of us older generations wonder out loud whether or not their generation is up to the challenge. (laughs) But personally, I'm excited about this generation, the problems that you will solve, the families you will raise, the leadership you will provide, because your generation is passionate. You care about justice, creation, doing the right thing, treating people well, and your generation is willing to make sacrifices to achieve goals larger than yourself. And in these distinctives of your generation, I believe that you reflect the character of God. In Jeremiah 9, verse 24, God says, I am the God who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. God doesn't just care about kindness, justice, and righteousness. He delights in them. And he doesn't just wish for these things. He takes action to bring them about, just like your generation does. And so as you begin to take on the challenges of adulthood, each of you will have opportunities, both great and small, to influence your generation. And in those moments, your most important contribution to your generation may very well be to direct the energy and the passion of your generation to exercise kindness, justice, and righteousness in ways that reflect God's will. And if you do that, you can help shape your generation to become the next greatest generation. Let's pray one more time for this next generation and for our study today. Father God, Thank you for the privilege of coming alongside these young men and women in a church community like Central. Lord, we ask that you would turn their hearts toward you, that they would find favor among their peers and exert great godly influence in their generation. As we open your word this morning, Father God, would you make your love evident? Would your spirit teach? Would you flood us with your grace and mercy? Speak to us, convict us move us, that we might experience the peace and abundance that you desire for each person here. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I can't believe that it was 17 years ago that we brought Naomi home, and I can't believe that it was 34 years ago that I headed off to college just like she is about to do. College is a pivotal time for many of us. It was for me. It was a time when I began to discover who I was and who I wanted to become. And while I was in college, I came across the quote that you can see on the screen behind me, and I've looked at it many times over the years. It says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. 
This quote had a big impact on, on me. But, you know, at the time that I uh, first found this quote, I wasn't quite sure who it was. And so as I prepared for this morning, I decided, well, I better figure out who actually said this. And so I did what every high school student does today. I asked ChatGPT. And the AI chatbot says that while it's not entirely certain who wrote it, most people believe that the, uh, it was first penned by the American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. But it sounds almost biblical, doesn't it? It sounds like maybe you could find it in the book of Proverbs if you were to look hard enough. But while it isn't biblical and while it's not found in the Bible, it does echo biblical thoughts or topics that Tim has taught on in the past. Specifically, the law of sowing and reaping can be seen here. The idea that if you plant a tomato seed, don't expect avocados to spring up. You see, God designed our world with certain rules, and as a result, a great deal of what happens tomorrow is affected by what you choose to do today. Tim recently referenced the law of sowing and reaping when he taught on tithing. The Bible tells us that everything we have starts out under a curse. But when we tithe 10% of our income, we redeem the other 90% from the curse, and that's why we can do more with 90% blessed income than we can ever do with 100% cursed income. So if we want to reap financial freedom, we sow financial obedience. And And so while the Emerson quote is not biblical, it points to a biblical truth. What we think and what we do matters because it will affect what happens next. As college students, if you party too much, your grades will suffer. For all of us, if we spend too much time on Snapchat or Instagram, our relationships, our work, our mental health will suffer. But if we study hard, if we prepare for the test, if we take care of business, things will generally go better than if you don't, right? For most of us, this idea resonates because we see the law of sowing and reaping operating all around us. So let's look at another verse that supports what Emerson has written here. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 23, verses 6 and 7. And I'm going to read this verse from the New King James Version because I believe that it's a little easier to understand the point that we have for today's lesson. It says, Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says, but his heart is not with you. All right, so what's going on here? This is one of those verses where you can scratch your head, right? Well, this proverb is warning that if you accept something from a miser, all he's going to be able to think about is the cost of what you have taken from him. But for our lesson today, I want to focus on the first part of verse 7, where it says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Here's the point of this verse. The man is not thinking miserly thoughts because he is a miser. No. The man is a miser because he is thinking miserly thoughts. Do you see the difference? His miserly thoughts precede his miserly character, just as the Emerson quote suggests. Our thought life matters because our thoughts precede our actions, and they shape who we will become. The man thought like a miser, and so he acted like a miser, and ultimately he became a miser. 
But an important implication of this verse is that if the miserly man could have just thought differently, he could change and stop being a miser. And this is, in fact, what the Bible teaches us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul challenges all of us to stop conforming to the pattern of this world and instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Do you see the pattern here as well? We're transformed after our mind is renewed, after we change our thinking, because changes in our thoughts precede changes in our actions and our character. And as God renews our mind, he enables us to begin to discern his perfect will. And as followers of Jesus, we need godly discernment. We need godly discernment in order to discern the difference between truth and lies, light from dark, good from evil, because lies, darkness, and evil are aggressively seeking to control your mind and your thoughts. As Tim has taught before, there is a real enemy of your soul. And it may surprise you to hear this, but Satan actually is a very careful study of God's word and God's design. He knows about the law of sowing and reaping. And he knows, as you think in your heart, so are you. So guess what? He goes straight after your thought life. Because if he can get you to sow wrong or sinful thoughts, he can knock you off the good path that God has created for you. And we see Satan's challenge to God's word and truth everywhere we look. God says, I created you male and female. The world says, Gender is a choice and a social construct. That is wrong. God says, don't steal. The world says, go ahead and show up late for work. Take extra long breaks and quiet quit. That is wrong. God says, remain in control of your mind and your body. The world says, take another drink. God says, cast your anxieties on me. The world says, there's a pill for that. God says, be faithful to the wife of your youth. The world says, there's nothing wrong with porn or being unfaithful, and they give it a pleasant-sounding name like polyamorism. That's wrong. We could go on, but these are just a few examples of the battle that is raging for your mind and your thoughts because your enemy knows that if he can keep you from truth, he can keep you in bondage. Bondage to fear and anxiety, bondage to the madness that results from trying to believe things that are not true. But Jesus invites us to follow him. And when you follow Jesus, you will begin to know the truth, and the truth is what sets us free. But it all starts with our thoughts. Because as you think in your heart, so are you. But do you notice anything unusual about this verse in Proverbs? Where does it say our thinking happens? In Western society, we generally consider to be you know, our brain or our mind to be the place where thinking happens, right? But the Bible tells us that somehow our thinking and our heart are connected. So the Bible tells us to protect our hearts. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, for example, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So this morning, how are you doing guarding your heart? How are you doing guarding your heart against the attacks of the enemy? 
and against the lies, darkness, and evil that want to keep you in bondage? Are you regularly spending time with God? Are you regularly reading the Bible and being filled up with God's truth, the truth about who you are, the truth about God's design, the truth about the freedom that Jesus desires for you, the truth about how your thoughts and your actions matter? And if you're like me and you're struggling with any of this, you're in the right place. That's why we talk about being imperfect people in progress, because most of us struggle with these things. And it's okay to be imperfect. Let's just remain people in progress. And the good news is that God loves each of us, loves each of you right where you're at today. But he loves you too much to leave you right where you're at. His desire is to be in deeper relationship with you so that you can gain victory over sin and grow in freedom. So does anyone want to be more free this morning? Yeah? All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of ways that we can do that. Now, this next topic may be new to some of you. The Bible teaches that we have all sinned. And this is because we were born with a sin nature, which we inherited that sin nature from Adam, who sinned in the Garden of Eden. But have you ever considered that you have also inherited sin tendencies from your parents and your grandparents. And these intergenerational sin habits can be at the root of certain recurring sin habits in our lives. Now, this is a big topic, but think of it this way. If I asked, do you look more like your mom or your dad, how would you answer? Chances are this question would spark and open up a really interesting conversation about your parents, your grandparents, your family history, because it's fun to talk about the characteristics that we share with our family. And this is why the first thing new parents do is look down at their little cherub and try and figure out who they look like, right? Whose nose is that? Look at those cute eyes. Where did those ears come from? And it doesn't stop there. As our kids grow, we begin to notice other similarities, their personality, their interests, the way they laugh or smile, the tone and inflection of their voice, how they use their hands when they talk, how they walk, and it's not even all genetic. I'm adopted by my dad, and yet somehow I walk almost just like him. (laughs) These similarities can be so distinctive that we can often tell who's related just by looking at them, right? But as parents, as much delight as we have in discovering some of the things we pass down to our children, we all have other things we hope they don't get from us. Maybe diabetes or heart disease runs in the family, or a tendency toward depression or anxiety. Maybe it's our bad habits or our addictions. As a parent, I want to pass down all my charming characteristics and none of my hurts, habits, or hang-ups, and I'm sure you do too. But we all know families who seem afflicted by the same destructive attitudes, actions, and addictions generation after generation after generation. Maybe you even see those patterns in your own family. Patterns of addiction or anger, greed, anxiety, grumbling, a controlling or manipulative attitude, pornography, sexual sin, whatever it may be, It is hard not to notice that certain sin tendencies 
seem to run in certain families. And the question is, is it possible that this is more than just bad luck or genetics? Is it possible that there's a spiritual component to these issues? Well, I think there is. Now, I know that talking about sin can be uncomfortable, but I want to ask you to stick with me for just a few more minutes because I think this is going to be helpful. Now, did you know that there are multiple words for sin in the Bible? It's sort of like how we have multiple words for talking about the weather. Now, it's a beautiful day outside today, but if, if I were to tell you that it's raining outside, I could either say it's raining outside or I could say um, it's pouring outside. Now, both are correct, but one is generic and one is more specific, right? Well, in the same way, the Bible has multiple words for sin, and the more we understand the subtle but important differences between these words, the better we can understand what the Bible means. Now, on the screen, we have a verse from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And this verse actually contains three different words for sin that are often, in other places, just simply translated sin. Now, uh, here's what it reads. It says, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And in this verse, Moses reminds the Israelites that God is loving and readily forgives sin. But why does Moses use these three words? Is he just being poetic? Why doesn't he just say, God forgives sin? I don't think Moses is being poetic here. I think it's certainly a beautiful verse, but I think there's meaning in the words that he has chosen. And I want to look at those meanings. So let's, let's dig in a little. Now, what I read from was the New International Version. But what we need to understand is that all of our translations, whether you're reading in English or Spanish, they're all being translated from the ancient Hebrew texts. And so in the NIV English version, the first word wickedness, sometimes also translated iniquity, um, comes from the Hebrew word avon. And if you are a uh, Hebrew scholar, uh, don't tell me I'm pronouncing these incorrectly. But... Uh, This word comes from a primitive root that means a depraved mind, twisted, bent, distorted. It implies an inward moral disposition to desire to sin against God. The next word that we come across in this verse that Moses penned uh, is uh, transgression. That word is sometimes, excuse me, is uh, rebellion, and that word is sometimes also translated transgression. This comes from the Hebrew word pesha, meaning rebellion against a person, a rebellion against God. It implies an outward act of stepping over the line. Consider trespassing into your neighbor's yard. The moment you step over the property line, you've committed a transgression. And in terms of sin, the moment we break God's law, we have stepped over the line of what is acceptable and we have committed a sin, right? And finally, we have the Hebrew word for sin, which in this verse was just translated sin. It is the generic word for sin. The word is chata. It means to miss the mark, to go wrong, to incur guilt. And this is that broad word. It's an inclusive word. uh, term, meaning both wickedness and rebellion. It's sort of like the word rain, right? It encompasses all types of rain, and this word encompasses all types of sin. 
So let's put all of this together. Because instead of simply being poetic, this verse is pointing out how broad God's forgiveness is. When it says that God maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, what God is saying is, I will forgive all your sin. The sin that is in your heart, the sin that is in your mind, the sin that is expressed in your rebellious outward actions, I will forgive all your sin inside and out. It is beautifully complete and encompasses everything, and this is a reason to celebrate. Because no matter what you have done, no matter what is in your past, God has a cure for that, and his name is Jesus. And we need that cure because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you know, sin results in more than just physical and spiritual death. There are other generational consequences to sin. You may have noticed that earlier I stopped halfway through verse 7 in chapter 34. Here's what the rest of that verse says. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for the sin of the parents down to the third and fourth generation. I mean, gosh, in the same breath, where Moses is telling us about God's love and mercy and his willingness to forgive sin, we read this. And if you're like me, it can be just a little bit difficult to read. It doesn't seem fair. And frankly, I don't want to think about my children being punished for my sin. I'd rather just skip over these parts of the Bible. But if we want to understand God we have to read and take in the whole counsel of God's word, even the uncomfortable parts. So what should we make of a verse like this? Well, to begin with, let's remember that we're reading a translation into English. And so sometimes when we hit a tough verse, it helps to go back and look at the original meaning of the Hebrew words. And you can do that through uh, a concordance, as an example. In this case, the word in the NIV English translation that is uh, written as sin here in the second part of uh, verse 7 is the Hebrew word avon. And so that means that it's not the generic word for all types of sin. It's not the word for rebellious outward expression of sin. This verse is talking about wickedness, iniquity. It is talking about our heart sin, our inward bent, our inward moral bent toward desiring to sin against God. And so next, I looked at this verse in a few different translations, and I was struck by the fact that the new King James Version doesn't use the word punish. Instead, it says God will visit the sins of the parents on the children. So an alternate paraphrase of this uh, verse in in, uh, in this verse 7 could be written like what's on the screen behind me now. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He visits the sinful tendencies of the parents on their children down to the third and fourth generation. This paraphrase reminds us both of God's love and willingness to forgive sin while still acknowledging, while also acknowledging that sin has devastating intergenerational consequences. 
both for ourselves and those that we love. One of those consequences is that our own sinful tendencies can be passed down to our children. And that's a sobering thought. So how can we gain victory over intergenerational sin habits or any sin habits for that matter? And so I want to encourage you with four quick points uh, that you can use in your battle against sin. First, Jesus paid it all. Recognize that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to, to deal with all of your sin, both past and present. Sin separated you from God, but 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us that Christ suffered for sin in order to bring you to God, right? And Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 uh, describes how Jesus suffered for us. Um, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Now, interestingly, in these two verses, we see all three types of sin that we studied just a moment ago. In 1 Peter 3.18, we see the broad word used for sin because Jesus died for all of our sin. And in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we see the two more specific words being used for sin. And I want you to look at the integrity and the consistency of how the Bible uses these words. I want you to notice that Jesus was pierced from the outside for our transgressions, our outside sin. And that he was crushed, or in some translations, bruised. Where does bruise occur? On the inside. He was bruised for our inside sin. Jesus paid it all so that you can be with God for eternity and so that you can experience peace. And this is why we can sing a song like we did earlier this morning that says, I'm going to see a victory for the battle belongs to the Lord. This is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second point to think about in your struggle against sin, and that is that sin wants to win. Recognize that sin is a formidable enemy. It's not going to give up easily. This is why even the Apostle Paul, the apostle that wrote a big chunk of our New Testament, confesses his personal struggles with sin. We read about this, we read about this in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, and Tim taught about it a few weeks ago, and Paul writes and he confesses. He says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I just keep on doing. Sin wants to derail you from God's plan for your life. It wants to oppress you and keep you in bondage. And we see a picture of sin's intentionality in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The image is that of a tiger crouching down, waiting to pounce and to leap the first chance that it gets. And in Psalm chapter 19, verse 12, David writes, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Sin lurks. That is what it does. It is patiently waiting for its opportunity. And it's not going to go away on its own. So we have to guard our hearts. We have to take this battle seriously because your enemy is taking the battle seriously. But let's be honest for a moment. We can't overcome sin on our own, right? 
Because if we could, we would have done it a long time ago. If we want victory, we need the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives, right? And this is what brings us to our third point. The third point is that confession is the key. We gain victory over sin when we confess our sins to God. 1 John 1, uh, chapter, uh, verse, or 1 John 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, is sometimes known as the Christian bar of soap. And it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to confess our sin to God because unconfessed sin has power in our lives. Not only does it bring death to those who don't follow Jesus, but unconfessed sin has power to oppress you and keep you from being free, even followers of Jesus. But have you ever asked, why does sin have this power? The answer is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. Paul writes that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Sin derives its legitimate power from the law. You see, when we sin, we violate God's law. And God's justice requires that restitution be made when we break the law. And until that penalty or debt is paid, sin has legal authority to oppress you and keep you in bondage. And this is where you and I have a big, big problem. Because we can neither keep the law nor pay the penalty. But Jesus did both. He kept the law and he paid our penalty. And as a result, when we confess our sinful thoughts and actions to God, he forgives us based on Jesus' sacrifice. And in this way, the law is fulfilled and sin loses its power. And this is why we can only gain freedom through confession. But what about all the sins that I've committed over the many years of my life that I've forgotten about? How can I gain freedom from sins that I can't even recall? Earlier, we saw David ask in Psalm 19, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? God, cleanse me from these hidden faults. You see, David couldn't remember all his sins either. Now, the good news for each of us here is that Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And you don't have to confess every specific sin to be fully justified and fully secure in your salvation and your eternity with Christ. But unconfessed hidden faults can still create a legal opening for sin to oppress you. So they need to be dealt with through confession. And God does this in our lives by gently and lovingly revealing and reminding you of past sin. And he doesn't do this to make you feel bad or to try and tear you down. He does it so that you can ask for forgiveness in order that you can experience more freedom. So as the Holy Spirit reminds you of sin in your life, our best next step is to confess them in order to be forgiven and to grow in freedom. And as we do this, as God does this through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, he transforms you to look more and more like Jesus. 
And if you want to accelerate this process of discovery and confession and transformation, do what David does in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Ask God to reveal even more. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. God will lovingly reveal things in your, in your life that you need to deal with. And for many of us, dealing with forgotten sins can be the key to gaining victory over recurring sin struggles in our life. Now finally, the fourth point is we are to take every thought captive. We started today by talking about how important our thoughts are and how there's a battle for your mind and truth because what we think matters. Our thoughts will set us on a path for what we will do and become. Paul talks about this battle in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, when he writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what are the weapons that we fight with? Well, two of our weapons are the power of prayer and the truth of God's word. Through prayerful confession, we demolish the strongholds of intergenerational sin. And with the truth of God's word, we demolish the arguments and the lies that are so brazenly opposing God in our culture today. But notice that Paul connects demolishing strongholds, arguments, and pretensions with the act of taking every thought captive. What does this mean? How do we do it? It means that we critically evaluate and consider every thought and idea that we come into contact with. Because as followers of Jesus, we are not permitted to passively or lazily allow thoughts or ideas to make their home in our mind. Instead, we are called to be discerners of truth, to judge thoughts and ideas and concepts according to the truth of Scripture. And then we obey Romans chapter 12, where it says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This means that we actively reject untrue things and we give them no place in our mind. And candidly, I'm not always very good at this, especially when I'm tired or stressed. And when I begin to go down a bad path in my mind, it's easy for me to, to begin to catastrophize, to focus on lies rather than truth. And when I do this, things don't go well for me or my family. And to get out of that spiral, I've learned that I need to replace the lies in my head with the truth of God's word. To do this, I often read or recite Philippians 4.8, where it says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul says, think about these things. You see, the Bible never tells us to empty our minds because God knows that we can't replace something like lies with nothing. So instead, we replace lies and evil thoughts by intentionally focusing on things that are true and right and pure. Things like the goodness of our God, his love for us, 
the victory that Jesus has secured for us. So three quick examples of taking thoughts captive. If it's in the middle of the night and you wake up from a disturbing dream, rather than allowing yourself to be anxious or continuing to think about disturbing thoughts or images, hand that dream and those thoughts over to God. Confess that dream to God. You can say something like, God, I don't know where these thoughts are coming from, but I ask that you forgive me for them. Please remove those images from my mind. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that Jesus already paid the penalty for this. If you're tempted by angry or impure thoughts, take those thoughts and confess them to God. Ask God to reveal where is the root of that sin in my heart. If he shows you something from your past, even decades ago, a thought or a memory or an action, ask for forgiveness. Ask God to heal you in that area of your life because God will heal you. He will heal you, your hurts, and he will free you from patterns of sin. When you're on your phone, scrolling and streaming, and you find yourself tempted or drawn towards sinful content, ideas, or worldviews, turn it off. Confess those ungodly thoughts to God. Ask him to help you to discern truth from lies. Ask him to help you to, um, to see sin like he sees sin. And in doing these things, you are taking thoughts captive. You're demolishing sinful strongholds. You're demolishing sinful thoughts that are seeking to set themselves up in your mind against God. And you know what? God will answer your prayers. And as he does, your mind will be renewed. You'll see the world differently. You'll be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. And you'll grow in freedom and experience victory in new ways against sin. As we close this morning, I want to go back and just revisit an idea that we discussed earlier. We all share characteristics with our parents. Maybe it's our eyes or our nose or our lips, the way we walk or talk. Maybe we love what we've received from our parents. Maybe you wish you'd inherited a little bit less. But similarities can be so striking that we can often identify related family members just by looking at them. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't just have earthly parents, you also have a heavenly father. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, Yet to all who received him, who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called to become children of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. You are created in his image. You bear his marks. And just as you share characteristics with your earthly parents, you share characteristics with your heavenly father. And as you grow and mature in your faith, you will come to look more and more like Jesus. And people will see, there he goes. He looks just like his father. There she goes. Look, she's looking more and more like her dad. This is the process of sanctification. This is what it means to be imperfect people in progress. This is what it means to grow in freedom. But it begins with our thoughts. Because as we think in our hearts, so are we. But maybe this morning, you're listening to this message, and you know you need freedom from your past. But despite all your effort, despite all the things you've tried, nothing has worked. And today you finally understand why.
because you can't do it on your own because you need Jesus. And if that is you, then today can be the day that you begin to experience freedom and renewal. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God's gift, his free gift, is Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins, your inside sins, your outside sins, all your sins. They've all been paid for. So you don't have to be separated from God any longer. If you want to accept that free gift, all you need to do is to ask God to make Jesus the Lord of your life and to begin following him day by day. And when you do that, God begins a good work in you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you will be transformed and experience the freedom that you've been seeking. Would you all please bow your heads and close your eyes? Before we close in prayer, I just want to ask if there's anyone who wants to begin experiencing the freedom that comes from following Jesus. If that's you today, I just ask that you might slip your hand up. No one in this room is watching. No one's going to be judging. But God sees you. He can see your heart. And God will do what only he can do. And so, Father God, this morning...